Welcome to Kings River Life's Mystery Rats Maze podcast, where we share with you mystery short stories and first chapters of mystery novels read by local actors. This episode features the first chapter of Thread of Gold by Anna DeVigo. It's read by local actor Teo Juarez. Thread of Gold was published in April of 2017 by Quill Driver Press. Now, if you'd like to help support this podcast, listen for details in the closing of this episode on how to become a patron and get some fun perks. The murder-suicide on Sutter Street was the beginning of a lousy day that got worse. The beep on Cora's police department pager had awakened her from an uncomfortable slumber on the couch. Light was beginning to creep through the fog, and the early morning news rattled out of the television. Her thin, leopard-print bathrobe was open, exposing her thighs to the cold. As she threaded one leg into a pair of jeans from the pile on the floor, her photographer, Scott Hewitt, called. He'd be waiting in front of her house in five. It had already been a terrible week. On Monday, she'd covered the deaths of three people, including a child, in a domestic homicide. Another two had died in a separate domestic on Tuesday. Her editor at the San Francisco Standard called domestic homicides misdemeanor murders. Less important, he meant, than a murder for hire, an Asian gang killing, or a gay hate crime. In his opinion, domestics were simply family squabbles gone bad. By the time Cora and Scott had left the murder scene, it was half past eight. Fog still hung thick and cottony over the pavement and penetrated the narrow spaces between houses. Damp, oily condensate, tinted pink from the bloody sidewalk, ran sluggishly into the storm drain. Cora found herself speaking in a low voice, as if normal volume might heap some further pain or indignity on the deceased mother, whose dead lover lay beside her on the concrete. They were covered by matching blue tarps. Over Cora's head, the snarl of utility lines was as dense as a hunter's net, and her nerves were flicking like hot wires. Facts, names, and interviews were recorded on mini-cassette and scribbled in her narrow reporter's notebook. The grandmother of the surviving child had taken the little girl away, tucked under the flap of her coat. Television satellite trucks had left. But Cora ached, her hands trembling and her breath seeming trapped in her chest. She sat in the passenger seat of Scott's Explorer with the heater turned up, and her coat collar in a stranglehold around her neck. Things would be better, she told herself, once she switched on the computer, as soon as her fingers began moving on the keys. That was a waste of time, Scott said. They won't use art with a ten-inch story. He jerked the wheel to avoid a double-parked UPS truck. They were passing the Burger King where the Winterland Ballroom had once stood. In the 1970s, Cora had watched a Grateful Dead concert there when she was dating her adulterous ex-husband, Stephen. Ten inches again? Who told you? When has Mannion ever given play to a domestic? For Monday's domestic murder, she'd been given a ten-inch hole on an inside page. For Tuesday, nine. Today, a young mother had been shot to death by her lover, who then committed suicide, all in front of their two-year-old daughter, the woman was 33, her lover, 38. They had parents, 
schools, careers, successes, and huge, shattering failures. Ten inches of type. Scott dropped her downtown in front of the standard, and she watched him nose back into traffic on his way to another assignment. The newsroom was mostly empty. Reporters were attending meetings and covering their beats. Editors didn't arrive until later, when there were completed stories to work on. Five clocks frowned down from the wall. Beijing, Tehran, London, New York, San Francisco. She tossed her knapsack on the desk in her 9 by 9 cubicle. Twenty years ago, when she'd first begun reporting at a little weekly on the peninsula, newsrooms all had side-by-side desks where the reporters traded gossip and half-listened to each other's telephone conversations. Now she worked on a plastic surface in a square box, separated from her colleagues on either side by six-foot-high, fabric-covered panels. Heat bloomed on her chest and crept up her neck. Her heart beat against her ribs. A hot flash. Her cheeks felt as though they would burst into flame. She sank into her chair, bent over her desk, and rested her forehead on her arm. When her pager had beeped at 5.30 a.m., She'd fished a pair of jeans and a long-sleeved pullover from the bedroom's pile of dirty clothes. She smelled her stale shirt now, enhanced by body heat and the cubicles and clothes space. Around her, voices were muffled, and footsteps whispered on the carpet. As her heart slowed, she grew sleepy. The evening before, she'd worked late, writing an updated take on the double homicide for the final edition, arriving home after ten. Instead of cooking dinner, she'd drunk some Lodi Red. She wished she had a glass now. Her breathing deepened, and in a few minutes, she was asleep. The telephone interrupted a dream about her mother, one she hadn't dreamed for many years, a disturbing one where she'd tried to plug a hole in her mother's chest with a towel. It was a struggle to open her heavy eyelids, and her mouth was so dry she could barely swallow. Her computer cursor blinked, sticky notes demanded her attention, and she was encircled by piles of reports, press releases, old notebooks, and yellowed newspapers. She rubbed the throbbing spot on her forehead, where it had rested on the wire binding of a notebook. The phone buzzed again. Her nails scrabbled against the handset. This could be Nathan calling from Boston College. Her voice cracked as she tried to say hello. Cora, it's me. Christopher Meyerling, the newsroom assistant. His breathy whisper sent static into her ear. Mannion is on his way. Look sharp. Cora opened her eyes wide enough, she hoped, to feign alertness. Over the top of the partition, the San Francisco clock read 5 p.m. Brooks, what the hell's the matter with you? I opened the damn chronicle this morning and read about the police chief's private party detail run by officers on overtime. A story you didn't have. Then the copy desk tells me you've missed deadline again? She swiveled to face him. Metro editor Stu Mannion wore his upper management wannabe uniform. Tasseled shoes, charcoal slacks, red tie, and long-sleeved white shirt with cruelly starched cuffs and collar. Almost done, she said. Bull, you've been sleeping on your notebook. There's a mark on your face. She cupped her hand over it as if it might tell her something. The dream was centered there, a beating lump of feeling. 
If she pressed it, she might cry. I worked overtime last night, then got called out early on the Sutter Street murder-suicide. Scott has photos. I know. I've seen the art. It's in the computer. Your story isn't. Her legs trembled, and she pressed her knees together. Strange how murder scene photos are called art in the news business. Maybe it was the color that made it art. The blue tarps, the clots of red. She pressed her temples with her fingers. Mannion picked at the knot on his red tie. I've got Clinton in town for a gore fundraiser and a multi-million dollar coke bust on the 280. I don't need this grief, chasing a lazy reporter over a misdemeanor murder. She repressed the desire to scream. Domestics were the real stories, the important ones. Over her years on the police beat, she had been drawn to these everyday tragedies with the fascination of a jumper looking at the bay from the Golden Gate. Readers needed to know the victims of domestics could so easily be them. Their hearts could be sweetly and achingly exercised by love, only to be torn apart by disappointment, mental illness, and bad history. This one's different, she said, looking for an angle to get more print space. It was a lesbian couple. Fairly unusual for a domestic. She felt ashamed to use the couple's sexuality to sell the story, but it cried to be told. They all did. Seven inches, he said. The red in Mannion's tie expanded to fill her vision until she saw nothing but the blood on the sidewalk. Fine red spatters, trickles, even congealed lumps. The tremors in her legs moved upward to her gut. She'd felt this way during the 89 Loma Prieta quake, as if she'd taken a misstep and tumbled into space. She fought a wave of nausea. When was the last time she'd eaten? A garlic fries at lunch yesterday. She turned her back on him. The story will be done in 30 minutes. His tassels clicked against his shoes as he walked away. She flipped open her notebook and set her fingers on the keys. She'd typed a couple of words before Meyerling stopped by her cubicle and flung himself into her visitor chair. She guessed the newsroom eavesdroppers already had filled him in on the dust-up. The only gossips worse than journalists were cops. Don't feel too bad. The great stew is in a stew. He bit into a tuna sandwich partially wrapped in white deli paper, the fish smell making her queasy. The judge has given the go-ahead for the merger, and I've been hearing layoff rumors all day. Liz Jonas from KABC called for comment. And the Rolex crew gave a statement that circulation is holding steady. The San Francisco standard is well-positioned in the market. Christopher stopped chewing. Very good. Employees had gone through two rounds of layoffs last year, and fear hovered in the newsroom like white noise. On his way out, Meyerling tossed the remains of his sandwich in her wastebasket. If you hear anything, let me know. She flipped through her notebook to the details she'd jotted down this morning at the scene. Her handwriting looked unfamiliar. The pages were rippled, as if tears, not morning fog, had touched the paper. She tapped the keys, typing filled with errors. She backspaced and made typos in the corrections. Her usual flow, notes to brain to computer, a transition that had always come easily, 
was disrupted. Her fingers seemed swollen as she set down, word by word, the lives of a woman and a child and the lover who'd killed the mother and then herself. Everything and nothing in seven paragraphs. She clicked save, added the slug, Sutter Street Murder, to identify the story, and sent it to the copy editor's file. She rang Nathan. His cell phone went directly to his mailbox. She hadn't been able to connect with him for two weeks, and the messages he'd left on her phone about midterm exams and a ski trip to Stowe were curt and distant. She dreaded going home, where signs of him were everywhere. She couldn't bring herself to move his muddy running shoes from the back door to his closet or toss out the flabby toothbrush in his bathroom. She'd clicked off her computer and zipped her jacket when Mannion rang her extension. See me before you leave. The newsroom cubicles, which had been empty when she arrived this morning, were full of reporters at this hour. Deadline for the second edition was close. Under her feet, the floor vibrated with the rotation of the huge presses in the basement as they churned out the first edition. She passed Meyerling and three or four reporters talking in low voices near the fax machine. When they spotted her, they fell silent. A hot flash started in her chest and crept upward until her neck burned. Sweat dampened her shirt and made it smell worse. The indignities of being 45. An ungrateful son, a husband who'd found a younger woman, a body run amuck. Mannion was polishing his loafers, one foot propped on the lid of an open desk drawer. Brooks, I'm taking you off police and putting you on special assignment. Hey, I apologize for falling asleep. I swear it won't happen again. He stopped rubbing his shoe and picked up a brown file folder. Darcy sent down a story idea. She groaned. The publisher's assignments never had a scrap of news value. Shameless promotions for Stanford, his alma mater, Puff pieces about his wife, Dee Dee's charity gala for the disease du jour. Crushingly boring stuff about his prize-winning cattle herd. The bovines were located on Darcy's showplace farm in the San Joaquin Valley, and any reporter assigned to a cow story was subjected to weeks of mooing sounds and manure jokes. I can't, she said promptly. George Chan and I are only halfway through the data on the SFPD's handling of domestic homicides how many incident reports they receive on the same family, how they're handled, how many result in fatalities. George will have to finish it on his own. George is a computer and numbers guy. He needs someone who can write. I'm putting Tracy Knapp on your beat. She'll be able to step in and help him out. Tracy doesn't have any background on the issue. She'll let it drop. She looked into his face to see if groveling would help, but he gazed over her head. Tracy is a fine reporter. Bring her up to date and introduce her to your law enforcement contacts by Friday. An acid taste rose in her. An acid taste rose in her mouth. She doesn't need much in the way of introductions. She's sleeping with the captain from Bayside Station. That's just a rumor, and Tracy denies it. Finished with his shoes, Mannion wadded up the polish rag and tossed it in the wastebasket. He handed her a clipping from the folder. Darcy wants an investigative piece to follow on this New York Times story. Cora ignored the clip. I can't believe you're giving me the velvet kiss-off. I've worked ten hours of overtime, and it's only Wednesday. 
Is this crap assignment because I took a nap? What was the matter with her? Mouthing off to an editor? She wanted the old days before corporate journalism, when being aggressive was an admirable trait. Mannion massaged the leather arms of his chair. You're always whining we don't give you enough time and space. Here's your chance. Her eyes widened. The crust from her recent sleep scratched her lids. <laughs> I get it. You think I'll screw up so you can fire me. Save one layoff. His face was as smooth as whole milk, and she knew she was right. Have Christopher make flight reservations and get you a travel advance, he said. Where am I going? New York State. The Finger Lakes. Cora scanned the clipping. She saw a man posing with a large black and white cow. Two ribbons fluttered from her halter. Darcy's gone mental. He owns the paper. He can assign any damn thing he wants. An investigation about cows? There's a murderer, or two. That should make you happy. Cows or humans? Possibly both, Mannion said. This reading of Thread of Gold was produced by Kings River Life and directed by Lori Lewis Ham. Be aware that we did change up some of the language in the reading to make the story more PG. You can learn more about Anna DeVigo and her writing on her website, AnnaDeVigoAuthor.com. For more mystery podcast fun, check out Clued in Mystery. They explore the mystery genre through books, TV, film, and interviews. Hosts Sarah M. Stephen and Brooke Peterson are mystery authors themselves. They love reading, watching, listening to, and talking about mysteries. Join them on Clued in Mystery to celebrate good mysteries everywhere. Learn more on their website, cluedinmystery.com. If you'd like to help us be able to continue to bring you more mystery fun, check out our Patreon page at patreon.com slash kingsriverlife. Even a dollar a month can make a difference. And we also have some cool merchandise available on Redbubble. Check the show notes for the link and for the links to our websites and social media. Subscribe to our podcast to make sure that you don't miss a single episode. Subscribe to our podcast newsletter for bonus content. If you enjoy this episode, please rate or review it as this helps make us easier for others to find. And be sure to tell your friends. Until next time, this is your announcer wishing you a life full of mystery. <laughs>